This program, of course, is presented by Pro Wrestling Illustrated, the most widely read, widely sold, and respected wrestling magazine in the world today. This is the Pro Wrestling Illustrated Podcast. I'm your host, PWI senior writer Al Castle, uh, by myself this week, and going to keep it short uh, because I want to get to our interview uh, in just a moment, and it's a bit of a long one, but a lot of fun, so I don't want to waste too much time blabbing uh, over here. Uh, In a little bit, going to be hearing from uh, an old friend of mine, Brian Shields, who is the author, or I guess technically uh, co-author of Second Nature, which is uh, the new WWE biography for Ric Flair and Charlotte, and uh, it was a big project for him that he worked out for some time, uh, spending time with the Flares, and uh, I've known Brian for a long time, and a little bit of PWI podcast trivia, Uh, there is one lost episode of the PWI podcast, and that was an interview I conducted uh, with Brian uh, probably within the first couple months of when we started doing uh, the podcast here, and we actually did it in person. We met at a diner uh, here uh, on Long Island uh, near near both of us, and we had a really fun conversation as we, we did uh, just recently for this podcast. Uh, but I got back and listened to the recording, and the audio really wasn't uh, much good. Both the recorder I used and just the, the ambient noise of a, a loud diner with all the plates clanging and people chatting. Uh, It wasn't really usable. Uh, So I had to nix that one. And uh, ever since then, that was like two years ago, uh, I very much wanted to get Brian back on. And and, uh, this is a perfect time with this project. So I'm going to hear uh, a bit about, uh, again, him working on this book and um, just his kind of entree into pro wrestling. And uh, one subject matter that we always end up talking about when uh, we, we get together or talk by the phone, and that is videotapes. We are both uh, very much VHS junkies and old Coliseum video junkies. So uh, prepare for a, a probably as long uh, and involved a conversation on the subject of VHS as you've probably heard in a long time. Uh, but really a lot of fun. Uh, and for the moment, I want to tell you about the latest issue of Pro Wrestling Illustrated on the last podcast. Dan and I went over the PWI 2017 Achievement Awards, and this is the year in wrestling issue where we uh, go through all those awards. We're talking wrestler of the year, match of the year, feud of the year, most popular, most hated, uh, rookie, woman, inspirational, comeback, uh, and on and on. And uh, a a fun group this year, as we went over uh, last week. Uh, always one of our most popular issues, and there's a lot more in here besides uh, the awards. Uh, we've got the top 10 stories of the year. We've got the unofficial official awards that are always uh, fun to go through, uh, some fantastic photographs from throughout the year, uh, most of which you've you've never seen. Um, and it's just really, I think, for any wrestling fan, a nice little thing, a nice sort of, uh, I don't know if keepsake is the word, but kind of a memento look back on a year that was sort of nicely uh, packaged in one magazine. Um, and what you want to do is go to pwi-online.com, and you could pick up the one issue, um, either ha- order it or download the digital edition, or even better, subscribe. And uh, here at the beginning of the year is just the right time to uh, go ahead and subscribe. Make sure you get all the big issues that come out throughout the year. And when you subscribe, you get a deep discount over the cover price. And uh, what we're talking about right now, we're working on the next issue that's going to include our annual feature on WrestleMania, the annual report cards, and uh, much, much more. Uh, before you know it, we'll have another PWI poll, another PWI 500, female 50, and then back to the uh, Achievement Awards. And to ensure that you don't miss any of those, um, and you know it could be tough finding PWI in your local newsstand, sometimes a little unpredictable. So what you want to do is go ahead, cut out the middleman, subscribe, have it delivered right to your door or download right to your laptop or mobile device, your phone, what have you. Um, and that's a lot faster, too. Uh, you'll get it uh, a lot faster than when the print edition drops. So, again, go to pwi-online.com uh, to do that. And while you've got the old computer open, uh, please follow us on Twitter at official PWI. Uh, find us on Facebook and uh, send us an email here at the podcast, PWI podcast at outlook.com. Uh, and you can feel free to follow me on Twitter as well. I don't promote it that much, but it's uh, Al Castle PWI. So uh, without any further ado, 
Let's hear from uh, my friend and a really talented author. Before he uh, did this latest book, he is the man behind the WWE Encyclopedia, uh, the first couple uh, editions, and has done much, much more. I mean, if you just look him up on Amazon, you'll see uh, a lot of WWE-related books and other stuff um, attributed to him. So he's a, a pretty prolific writer, and he is the co-author of Second Nature, The Legacy of Ric Flair, and The Rise of Charlotte. It's Brian Shields. I'm glad we could finally have you on now with, with much better audio. You know what? It, it's great to be back speaking with you, and I can't thank you enough for your support over the years of, of my writing and my different work within the world of professional wrestling, sports entertainment, uh, whatever you'd like to call it. So, yeah, it's, it's great to be back. Let's, uh, let's jump in. Yeah, yeah. And when we were talking, I think uh, the, the second edition or the revised edition of the WWE Encyclopedia, which you were very instrumental in putting together, had come out. And I remember asking you about what was on the horizon and you were a little coy. I, you know, you talked about uh, some projects maybe being in the works. And now I think we have a better idea of what that was. Um, you, you were the author of the, the new book about uh, Ric Flair and his daughters, uh, Second Nature. Uh, I've got a copy uh, right in front of me. Uh, a fantastic book. You know, we're here in the holiday season. I'm not exactly sure when this is going to be running, but even if, if Christmas passed already, by all means, go go uh, check out this book. It's just so much fun read, um, and uh, uh, kind of a follow up to Ric Flair's uh, uh, biography that WWE put out some years uh, ago. But then also a biography of uh, his daughter Charlotte, and um, that's one of the things I want to talk talk to you about is is sort of mixing the two and finding that balance. It's a really kind of unique book in that sense that it is. Uh, essentially two stories, but then also the story of them together. So there's a lot of kind of weaving yes. back and forth uh, uh, of the two of them. So can can you talk a bit about sort of how this project was brought to you? And was it on you to sort of figure out how, how to best tell this story? Well, we worked on this book for almost two years. So, you know, the, the project was brought to me by WWE which now my, my relationship with them in some form or fashion goes back now 19 years. Mm -hmm. uh, 2000, 2018 will actually be 20 years uh, that my relationship with WWE began. And for the last 11 years, part of that has been as a, a writer and author. So they, they came to me and said, you know, confidentially that, that there is a book idea that they are trying to get off the ground where it would be a dual biography or a dual memoir with nature boy, Ric Flair and, and his daughter, Charlotte. And I saw, you know, what was sent was a basically just like a one page ultra, ultra high concept where that was basically it. And, um, what I did was I put together a concept which basically just outlined my overall vision for what the project could be. And one of the things that I, that I thought was really important was that one, the book begin with Rick's storyline in November of 2007, when he came back on raw, when WWE was in Charlotte and that was where the retirement storyline began. Like I thought that was really important to begin right at that point. And because the book was supposed to talk about his entire career and his, the legacy of his career. So I thought that that was a very important starting point. Um, and then I, I wanted to do alternating chapters or sections because in real life, Rick and Charlotte have always been so close. Mm -hmm. And that's something that people will learn about in the book where, you know, at home, on TV, he's the kiss stealing, wheeling, dealing, Rolex wearing and all of that stuff. Um, but when he went home to his kids, you know, Ashley and Reed or Charlotte and Reed, um, he brought uh, their lunch to school every day. He brought them everywhere with him. Um, he was an incredible father to them. So there's always been a very close bond there. So I thought that the easiest way to do that in a book would be for alternating chapters or sections. So um, I presented the concept to Rick 
and um, and thankfully he he liked it. And um, you know, Charlotte heard the uh, the concept. I presented it to her a little bit after that, and uh, and then before I knew it, I was I was working with both of them. And one of the things that I want to mention very quickly is they said from the beginning that they wanted them to be real, that they wanted this to be their true life, um, good, bad, up and down. There was a period where people will learn about in the book where Rick and Charlotte did not really speak that much. There was, there, there was a point. So, you know, and they wanted to collaborate with me. They said to me, we want to know what you think, what the best way is to do this. You know, and as a writer, that couldn't be a greater gift. Mm-hmm. So um, it was a wonderful almost two years working with the Flares, and the last few months have been great, you know, celebrating the, the release of Second Nature, and I'm just so happy that so many people are happy with the book. Yeah, yeah. And we, we've talked about you being a fan, you know, since being a kid and, and how so much of what you've been able to do with WWE is is sort of this dream come true. And sometimes, uh, you know, you kind of catch yourself in that moment as sort of the fanboy. And I imagine the the pinnacle of that is sitting down with the greatest of all time and for, for months at a time and just hearing personal, intimate accounts of, of these historic wrestling moments. So, uh, was it kind of a, a you had to pinch yourself uh, moment at times sitting there with Ric Flair? Absolutely. I mean, especially the buildup leading to that first meeting. Um, you know, and, and you you brought up growing up as a kid. I mean, you know, I grew up in Rockville Center on Long Island, watching wrestling in my mother's living room, and back in the day in the eighties. You know, cable television was huge. Uh, home video was huge. I mean, those terms now seem funny. Right. Um, but just very quickly, I mean, you know, you had the AWA and world-class wrestling on ESPN. And then you had, you know, Georgia Championship Wrestling. And then later, NWA Jim Crockett on Saturday mornings, WTBS. So it's funny when I remember getting ready for that first um, conversation with Rick. And for some reason, on the way there, all of these things were kind of playing back in my mind. And anytime I get to work with WWE, it's very special for me. But I did feel like everything that I worked on up to that point was a dress rehearsal to get me ready for this moment. And that moment was was meeting the greatest of all time and then taking him through a concept that I came up with and that I wrote and that I, that I was presenting to him, which, I mean, I never would have imagined that ever. Yeah, yeah. How, how open was he? I mean, here you are essentially a stranger to him. I don't know what interaction you had with him uh, before this, but asking him to uh, again sit down with you and really open up, in some cases, about some stuff that... Um, you know, it, it it's pretty serious stuff. Some some really dark moments, and and you know, we'll talk in a bit about the the thirty for thirty. But I think a lot of uh, of people got to to see some of that side um, over the last few months. Uh, but a lot of it is not terribly pleasant stuff to talk about. And to get him to to open up to you again, essentially a stranger, about some of this, uh, w- was that difficult at first? I thought it was going to be, and you know, one of the things that is just jumps out at you right away when, when you meet Rick and Charlotte is how incredibly kind they are and how easy they are to speak to. And you just, you feel like you have known them for a very long time, even though like for me, I, I never met them before. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that was something that I was a little uh, concerned about just on my end. Um, making sure that I was doing everything correctly and that I was making them comfortable and and things like that. But, I mean, they I think because they wanted the project to be this way from the beginning, that it made those conversations easier. I also, you know, tried to lead up to certain things, you know, as opposed to talking about 
you know, some of the more darker things right away. Um, and then some of the things that were brought up, you know, I found out, you know, later in the process that, you know, that they wanted to share more, uh, you know, than we originally talked about, which I was very happy with as long as it was something that they were, were really comfortable with. But they were, I mean, they were just wonderful to work with. I mean, phone calls, text messages, emails. Um, I met with both of them individually several times. I met with them both together um, a few times as well. I mean, it was an incredible experience uh, yeah. working <clears throat> with Rick and Charlotte. Yeah. And and obviously, the when you talk about some of the, the dark parts of, of their life, it, it doesn't get much darker than uh, the death of Reed a couple of years ago. And I'm sure it's, it's what a lot of people are, are looking when, when they grab your book, uh, looking to see disgust. And, uh, you know, it's one of the parts I jump to. And uh, again, I, I can't imagine even broaching the subject with, with Rick, uh, much less asking, or, or Ashley, much less asking them to really kind of go back to that day essentially in their minds and, and relive it. So what was that like? Very difficult. Very, very difficult. Those were very difficult discussions. And really, I mean, the second nature in general as a book is a testament to, you know, the, the courage of both Rick and Charlotte to share so much of their personal lives and, one of the things that people will, will learn when they read Second Nature is who Reed Flair was as a person and the incredible friend he was to those who knew him, brother, son. And he's a very big part of the story because he was a very big part of Rick and Charlotte's lives. So is another example of like the way the book is structured and how things are discussed is, is very true to life as they, as they happened. Yeah. And speaking about Reed, you know, there were a lot of, of laughs because he was a very funny, fun loving kind of person, which is something I learned about. Um, and then, you know, you, you learn about later in life, the, the battle with addiction that he fought so courageously because he, he did want to get better. And, uh, I mean, like one of the funny things I remember learning about, uh, from Charlotte was, um, one summer their, their parents got this huge bill in the mail from the country that they were members of. And they had, you know, and their parents had no idea where it came from or, or, or who spent this amount of money. And what ended, what they ended up finding out was that, uh, Reed who loved working with kids and, and teaching them, you know, how to play different sports and things like that. What he was doing was he was having these almost impromptu classes at their country club with, with all the kids teaching them, uh, how to play different sports. And then at the end of that, he was taking all of them to lunch. Wow. That's and great. that's how they found out that how they amassed this enormous bill, uh, <laughs> at, at the, at their, at their country club. So, um, he is, he's a very big part of, of the story and the Charlotte's part begins with her running in the backyard with her brother as a child. So you really get her whole life story from childhood growing up in Charlotte to uh, the book ends at WrestleMania 32 in Dallas. So, you know, there's, there's Rick's career from 2007 on to, to that WrestleMania 32, a lot of history that people will learn about from his, his whole career and then Charlotte's, you know, life story. So there's a lot in second nature. 
Yeah, yeah, I was just uh, going through it uh, before we talked, and uh, I saw a lot even on, on TNA, which is something that WWE rarely, if ever, acknowledges, and <clears throat> pretty pretty uh, in-depth uh, uh, talk about his, his time there. So, um, and, and the point you make about Reed Flair, it, it's really interesting. We talk about this being uh, essentially a, a dual biography, and in some ways it's, you know, a tri-biography, because, uh, right, I mean, there I think there's more to learn about Reed Flair uh, for for you know to whom most people just look at as kind of this mysterious figure, this tragic figure. All they know that he was you know Ric Flair's son and and kind of had a, a budding wrestling career and died. But uh, yeah, really getting behind that to who the person was uh, and that there there was uh, as you touched on a, a real kind of kind gentle soul there. You know, again, when when all you know about somebody is that he he died of, of uh, addiction. It's pretty easy to kind of cast dispersions on how they live their life, and and I think you did a terrific job of uh, showing that that wasn't what he was all about. And and um, thank you. Yeah. Um, it, so much of this, I mean, I, I just a few months ago, I, I interviewed the the uh, the filmmaker behind the Thirty for Thirty uh, that came out around the same time as this. Uh, was that just kismet? <laughs> you know that. Because uh, your book almost becomes sort of the complement to, to the, the the ESPN piece, um, so when you heard about that being put together, was was that intentionally? Was there this drive to tell Ric Flair's story? Um, and and then the other thing it dovetails with obviously was uh, the unfortunate news earlier this year about Ric Flair's medical problems, and then he's all over the news, People Magazine, right. and it all kind of happens comes together around the same time. So uh, again, was that just coincidence? It was. I mean, when I when I started working with Rick and Charlotte, I knew that there was a production of 30 for 30 focusing on Rick in the works. Um, but the, the book and the 30 for 30 were not like official, like it, they weren't associated in any way. Like there was no collaboration or anything like that. Um, I saw the 30 for 30. Uh, I thought it was excellent. Um, and, you know, as far as, as second nature goes, you know, the, the idea was, was just to, to write this, this book because there's was so much interest in the last years of Rick's career as a full-time talent. And there had never really been the story told of, you know, what was going on in his mind, in his heart, during that retirement storyline up through the Hall of Fame, the match with Shawn Michaels. Um, you know, you, we talked about the, the TNA run. So there was a lot there. I mean, you know, and Rick talks about it candidly um, and sometimes in a joking way. But, you know, I mean, he had two marriages during that, that brief period as well. Like, that's in the book, you know, the, the, the divorces. Um, so, you know, it was just kind of one of those things where, where, you know, we were, these things were being worked on, you know, kind of at the same time, but separately. Yeah, yeah. And and you touched on him being such a great father to uh, Ashley and Reed, and uh, I think what what the Thirty for Thirty showed that really covered uh, a lot of a different time than what your book did was that that was not the case with um, his, his other kids, uh, and he's upfront about that. So um, can you talk a bit about that as well? I mean, did did you sense that with his his younger kids? who uh, he got to spend more time with because they came at the tail end of his career or, or after, really, when he was working full-time, that he truly t- really tried to kind of make it up uh, everything he wasn't with his older kids, with his younger kids? Absolutely, and, and, and he talks about that in the book very candidly, and, and he talks about it in the intro, uh, in his introduction to the book, where, um, you know, Rick has an introduction, and, and you it kind of begins in that airport where they, uh, they get to uh, WrestleMania 32. So it's Rick, you know, what was going through his mind um, when he was going through the airport in Dallas that, you know, to get to WrestleMania 32 weekend. And it's right there where he says, he said to me, he said, you know, I may be regarded as the greatest 
wrestler of all time or one of the greatest wrestlers of all time, but I know I'm not going to be regarded as the greatest right. father right. of all time. And and we talked a lot about um, his his feelings of guilt and sadness when it comes to you know not being a part of his first his two children, uh, Megan and David. Uh, really not being a part of, of their lives growing up. And, um, and that's something that really, um, is a, is a, is a big deal for him. So, and he does say that he says that, you know, that he really cherished that time because WCW schedule was so much different and so much lighter than WWE schedule. Um, that, you know, he was just very grateful and especially looking back now, that he was able to be such a part of of Ashley and Reed's um, upbringing, which you know he also felt that sometimes he knew that you know that that made it even harder for for Megan and David, and you know we we talk about that at uh, at great length in the book. Yeah, you wonder if there's um, some resentment there, even though. What I've from from far away been able to capture is that um, if there is some there, there's not very much. And and what I sense is that the older kids are are um, happy to see their younger siblings have the relationship that they didn't have with their dad. Yes, uh, and and the other thing too is is that you know Megan and David and Charlotte talks about this in the book. You know they they grew up in in Minnesota. Um, but they, Megan and David were so close with Ashley and Reed that when they became older, when Megan and David became older, uh, they, they moved to the Charlotte area to be, you know, to be closer to them. Mm -hmm. So it was really fascinating to me and many times heartwarming to learn about, uh, how close Rick was with, with his children and, and also how close the children were with one another. I mean, you know, for instance, um, you know, they were at, uh, when Reed Flair debuted, when he made his wrestling debut, I mean, his family was sitting front row. His brother, David was, uh, his tag team partner, their dad was, was in their corner against the nasty boys who in their corner, of course, was, was mouth of the South, Jimmy Hart. And, Mm -hmm. The special referee of that match ended up being Hulk Hogan. Um, so, you know, they were all very close, and that was something that that I really enjoyed uh, learning about as as we worked on the book. Yeah, yeah. So, as I mentioned, the other thing that happened around the time of your book uh, coming out, or just before it was the Ric Flair's uh, health scare. So, <clears throat> you preparing to for the book to to drop. Um, you, you know, you learn about this news for a while. It looked really touch and go. Uh, how were you yeah. processing all that? I mean, did, were, were you, uh, I imagine you were worried for the worst as everybody else. I, I was just very worried for, for Rick and his family. And, uh, I mean, I can't, I can't express how, how kind, uh, Rick and, and Charlotte, uh, have been to me. Uh, since working with them and and getting to know them a little bit, and uh, and I, I was just immediately very concerned. I spoke with him a couple of weeks before, and um, and that was what I just kept thinking of was, you know, he he sounded great, you know, like he always sounded. I mean, you know, uh, one of the one of the nights that I was uh, one of the days, excuse me, where I was backstage. Uh, was the day in Baltimore where that night on TV, um, you know, Charlotte, you know, cut the promo on Rick, basically ending their on-air association. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, what, what a lot of people don't realize is that after that, Rick's schedule was just as busy. I mean, between the corporate speaking events, the Comic-Cons, the meet-and-greets, um you know, all the different kinds of appearances that he does with professional sports teams. So, I mean, he was on the road just as much as he was when you'd see him on WWE programming. So, um, you know, when that happened, 
it was uh, in August. I mean, it was just, um, I know how I felt, so I can't imagine uh, what members of his family felt like and the people who were so close to him, you know, throughout the sports and, and entertainment worlds. I mean, you know, people feel so strongly in a positive way about Rick and, you know, what he's done, how he's maybe helped their lives or careers. And I mean, you saw that on social media, people posting messages. And so I can't imagine uh, what people who were really close to the family were, were feeling, but it was, it was, it was very, uh, very frightening. And I can tell you, I spoke with him two days ago and um, he sounded phenomenal and he's really looking forward to uh, all the different opportunities that the new year is going to bring. And um, I, I can't wait to, to see what he does, but he, he sounds great. Do you sense that he's really turned a corner? I mean, he's been um, open, I think, in, in the 30 for 30. Uh, actually, it was after that. I think it was the People interview. might have been the first he acknowledged, yes, he's an alcoholic. Um, and for alcoholics, you know, for, for all their good intentions of, of wanting to get sober, um, that can be a real challenge. And it's not something that uh, you you just gain success overnight. So, uh, again, do, do you feel that he's at a point in his life and do you sense something in him talking to him that he really is ready to, to do this? I do. I, I do, and, and he has been very vocal about that um, since since recovering, and 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 he's also very candid about about his his recovery. I mean, you know, he has said it in interviews that he's doing well, that that he's you know got a a, a long road ahead of him, and, but that he's doing well, and um, and I think I think the fact that he's aware of that is is a big deal. Um, I mean, we do touch on on the um, on the alcohol consumption in the book because um, I remember one of the things that we talked about. Um, one of the times that I met with Rick, um, he hosted a, just a, a wonderful lunch in Atlanta, and um, and we talked about it. And, and you know, and, and he said that um, you know that he never he never uh, drank at work or showed up to work under the influence of mm-hmm. alcohol. Um, and he wanted to make sure that that was, um, that that was made clear. Um, but he said, you know, the, after the show was, was over when it was time to, you know, go to the next party or the next town or, you know, create the next party, um, that that's where, you know, that that's where, where he would uh, consume alcohol. And then, you know, we also talk about um, the the weeks and months following uh, Reed's passing, mm-hmm. where, you know, where he, you know, where he was very candid and open about using, uh, using alcohol to, you know, to, to, to cope with that, uh, to just to, to cope with the unbelievable sense of, of loss and pain. And, um, you know, so we do, we do cover that in the book as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and the other thing that's interesting about the book is you talked about being approached, uh, about this project one to two, two and a half years ago. Yes. And, uh, Charlotte was obviously well on her way by then, but even, uh, back then wasn't was, was what she is now. So, um, it, it, uh, you know, did did you sense that collectively, Ric Flair, WWE, the whole wrestling community, even way back when, when they first conceived this project, knew that they were really onto something special uh, uh, with Charlotte? I think so, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I, I think, you know, in the book, we we go through her, her rise through, you know, first appearing at FCW in Tampa, Florida, and then going to NXT and her her growing pains, uh, learning the the wrestling business. And one of the things I remember she said to me was, she said, you know, I could do even from the beginning. It was, you know, I could do the moves. It wasn't 
that wasn't so much of a challenge. It was knowing what to do and when to do it and then why. Right. And really learning the the business and and learning that aspect of it. I mean, you know, the people will learn that I mean, Charlotte was a top tier athlete from childhood, whether it was um uh competitive gymnastics, uh competitive cheerleading where I mean they're traveling all over the country every weekend to uh, then finally volleyball, club volleyball, and being an NCAA Division One athlete for volleyball. Um, you know, I mean, her athleticism is off the charts, and it always has been, but people will, um, people will learn when they read Second Nature that when you're in the wrestling business, it, it's not just about performing these right. really stunning moves, but there's a, a thought process and a psychology to it and a, and a storytelling. So yeah, I think um, that's what what's been most impressive about her. I mean, as you touched on, the athletics were always there, and we saw that from her her first match, where she was still pretty green in, in some of the other ways. But you saw she's capable of doing things in the ring that no other woman can. But where you've seen uh, not necessarily the most progression, but 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 what I've been the most impressed with is the the comfort level in front of a camera, behind a microphone. It, it's more than just being a good promo. Uh, it is uh, just owning it, feeling like like you belong. Um, she seems to have a, a comfort level that, you know, veteran wrestlers of, of any gender who have been around for 20, 30 years never get. And, uh, yeah, she's just, you know, no pun intended, she's a natural. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and we talk about that in, in the book because again, you see that rise through NXT. Uh her her touchstone moment at that time was the match with Natalia uh for the NXT women's championship. And then, you know, you 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 you're taken with her uh through her debut in WWE and she's very candid about the growing pains with you know, Team PCB and, and that not really working out mm-hmm. and then um, being booed as a quote-unquote good guy and how difficult that was and, and some of the difficult promos and how important all of her opponents were uh, from, you know, from Paige to the Bellas, uh, Becky Lynch, and then this, you know, the incredible match at, at WrestleMania 32. So, you know, uh, people will learn really what was going on with her during during that that time. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's talk about really important stuff: Coliseum video and and VHS tapes, which is the one yes. thing. That, yes. <laughs> the one thing that we, that yes. we share. And I have been on a run in in the last few months, um, and I'm not sure where it started, but I had I've got my a VCR that it is. Um, uh, a replica of the first VCR that my parents ever got. So I searched high and low for this thing. Wow. It's an old RCA top-loading select division. And I got a couple years back, but uh, it it broke. And so, you know, there used to be like TV and VCR repair places, obviously, in every corner. You, you can't find them anymore. But I found oh. one. I brought it in. Inevitably, you get, what are you doing? <laughs> Why are you right. fixing this? You know, uh, but yeah. you, you explain that, you know, there's sentimental value attached. And uh, this is all to say, this started a run where I bought, I got that one fixed. I bought another VCR that is just fantastic. I got it from the same repair place, which is like a, a very oh, awesome. high-end Sony uh, VCR. And then I've just been on eBay, just just racking them in, uh, because now my my thing oh. is the the originals, right? So it's not enough, because I've got tons of, of, as I'm sure you did, I used to uh, copy the VHSs, right? You do the two VCRs next to each other, and then I'd rent a, a Coliseum video, and then you take you you copy it, um, and you'd have yeah. it. But now I'm I'm on the hunt for all the originals, and uh, yeah. yeah, it's it's incredible. It really is this whole kind of subculture where there are tapes that are uh, pretty easy to find. There's tons of them. You'll find them all over eBay, relatively cheap, and some of them 
are a fortune. I mean, there are Coliseum videotapes, yeah. um, well over a hundred dollars that are that are selling there. So, I don't know. This is. <laughs> I feel like you're the one person who will understand some of this. What? What? And I know you're a VHS uh, aficionado as well. And there's a few others out there. Uh, but what do you think it is? Is is it just nostalgia? Is there something? Uh, I'm telling you, I, I pop in a a an original. Coliseum video, like you know, with with the the SP quality, which is like the best quality, onto yes. a a VCR, uh, and now the new experience is on the really high end TVs because I have a nice sixty inch Sony uh, a television, and now watching these old tapes on a really big TV, uh, it's really kind of yeah. cool, and and I'm sometimes impressed by like you know this doesn't look half bad. Yeah. Yeah, first of all, bravo. I, I, I love everything you just said. Um, and I need to just frame this a, a little bit. So in the 80s, and I'm going to say into the, into the 90s, I don't know when it stopped, but I'll say on Long Island in Nassau County, um, you could go down Merrick Road or Sunrise Highway as it traveled through the entire county of Nassau County there were TV and VCR repair shops all over the place. Yeah. Like, like every town, it seemed, had like two or three. And, um, you know, I, I think that part of it, I think part of it is, is nostalgia, but I think part of it is also what it, it represents in a larger sense for, for uh, Generation Xers like us is... It was an event going yes. to the video store. There, the and you know, there's something about it that I wish younger people would have today. Kind of like how I wish that they learned what it was like to be at like Tower Records or mm -hmm. Nobody Beats the Wiz to buy music. Um, there was a whole experience with going to the video store and what that represented as a kid because it was usually on the weekends and if you were like good in school or, or <laughs> did something good that you were able to maybe like up the ante and get like read like two videos. Yeah. Um, you get to pick from the, uh, and, the new releases, which were a little more money. Yeah. 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 Which were always a little bit more money, right? The upsell. Yeah. Um, but like, and, and the new release board, like the excitement of seeing what new releases were on the horizon coming into like your little video store. Um, and it was just an incredible experience because you, you had to wait, yeah. you know, movie movies, were, movies were coming out on VHS, you know, what, six months after they came out. I, yeah. I mean, and in <clears throat> wrestling and in, and in wrestling, you know, once it got to like pay-per-views, you know, I mean, the pay-per-views weren't coming out on video for a couple of months. So yeah. unless you had the pay, unless you got the pay-per-view, you were um, you were relegated to the still images that yep. WWE would show on their TV shows, or what you read about in the magazines. Which, of course, you know, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, who at one time had their office in Rockville Center, right, where yeah. I grew up. Um, you know, obviously they, they were the best, but if there was nothing like that experience. And I, I think, I think that there is a nostalgia in that, but I also think, especially today, there's an appreciation for what it represented. I also think that we had a great balance of technology with still some of the real old school um, TVs and videos, like you just said, top loading VCR. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's an earlier model of a VCR. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, it's just it was just a wonderful time. And as far as Coliseum videos go, um, I mean, there are a couple that I still need to complete my collection. eBay is phenomenal. There are some really Facebook groups. Um, and I think even that, you know, it's just these were matches or um, or features on a certain WWE superstar 
that you weren't seeing anywhere else. So right. the excitement for it was just unbelievable. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. I think anybody from from our generation has a nostalgia for for uh, VHS tapes because, as you said, it was it was so much part of just the culture, right? I mean, um, you know, going into a Christmas uh, uh, soon, that very often was like Christmas Day for 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 us, or 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 be like a New Year's Day. I mean, you'd open all the gifts and all that. But my family was small, and now you're just kind of around the house, and there's downtime. And the big treat was, you know, Dad would drive us to to Blockbuster or something, and we'd all get our picks, yeah. and then go back home, and and you're watching movies or wrestling tapes or whatever. Um, so so anybody from our generation, again, I think has a, an affection for VHS. But I think for wrestling fans coming up um, uh, in our generation, it, it's even more, right? Because it was such a lifeline for, for um, getting your eyes on, on wrestling and kinds of wrestling that you wouldn't otherwise have access to. And, uh, you know, I didn't grow up with, with a lot of money. We had, you know, we, I didn't have cable uh, through most of my childhood. I think I was 19 or 20 before we finally got cable turned on. Um, and not having cable, we also weren't getting pay-per-views. And, and even if we did, I don't think we were going to be spending whatever it was back then, $20, $25, even if they weren't as often. But still, it was a lot. So, right, I mean, the only way I'd get so geared up about a, a SummerSlam 90 or something like that um, and then wouldn't see it, uh, you find out the news through whatever, through through WWE the next weekend, Superstars or, or Wrestling Hotlines or something like that. Uh, but the first I'd get to actually see these matches would be when the, the video was released, whatever it is, six weeks, two months later, and rushing to the video store uh, to see it. And that's also the case with all the um, the, the, the Coliseum video uh, like specials, like the best of the WWF or Super Tape. And those are the oh, ones that I, I, I really like. Uh, I, I'm almost through the whole Super Tape collection. I can't find... Well, I can find Super Tape 92, but it's a small fortune. Go check it out on, on eBay. They're like 100 bucks each. Um, oh, so, yeah. So, yeah, and those were uh, essentially dark matches from uh, like primetime wrestling uh, shoots, a lot of house show matches. You know, mm-hmm. it was relatively rare that they were any good. I mean, this is like 80s and 90s WWE, and, and work rate was not exactly a high priority for them at the time. Uh, but it was just... You know, just watching something that otherwise, because growing up as a, as a wrestling fan um, in in the eighties and nineties, what was the majority of what you were watching on TV? Squash matches. So yeah. just seeing an yeah. an Ultimate Warrior match um, when he he almost never worked on TV outside of maybe the the odd Saturday night's main event. Then you rent the tape and there'd be Ultimate Warrior versus Mister Perfect or versus whoever. Um, it, there was something really kind of exclusive and and rare about it. Uh, and yeah, I mean, you'd, you'd go out of your way to, to check him out. Oh yeah. I mean, and the best of WWF series is one of my favorite series of anything ever. Yeah. And, um, and those matches, if you're, if there was a match on that series, you knew it was exciting. And, you know, and then there was, there was the super tape matches. There were two, uh, two different videos on the best of the steel cage matches. Yeah. Um, and I, I remember when the super tape series came out and one of them, I think one of them has um, the match from Madison square garden. There was that, that period of time where the ultimate warrior was in six man matches with the road warriors right, against, against demolition. all three yep. members of demolition, which Unless you were playing the WrestleFest video game in the arcade. <laughs> That's the next thing I'm trying to buy for, for my basement, for my man cave. Yeah. You know, like, unless you were playing that video game specifically, there was no other way at that time that you could get that matchup. Because even the action figures, they didn't have the action figures for those guys, for all six guys like that at the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the Coliseum video, and, and what you said, the the feature tapes on like one superstar, I mean, the younger members of your audience need to check out like the British Bulldogs, um, the, the British Bulldogs Coliseum videotape, Ricky Steamboat, uh, Randy Savage, Roddy Piper, Andre the Giant, um, the Hulkamania series yeah. was awesome. I have most of those um, too, yeah. 
And uh, the best one, I think, is the second one because you have the great series with Paul Orndorff. The, the whole Orndorff story, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. oh, God. And that is such an underappreciated storyline. Um, and I thought one of one of the best uh, of Hogan's career. And um, that Coliseum video series, you know, there's something about that series, the LJN figures, yep. and some of the video games where if you go online, people talk about them with a detail and a reverence and a frequency that you think that they're still current today. Yeah, yeah, micro league wrestling. Right, if you remember that on on the Commodore sixty four. Yeah. That was a blast. Gosh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then then yeah, kind of the the next iteration, the next generation. Thinking to and I was a little older in my college years, um, but VHS was still very much a thing. Was <clears throat> uh, uh, more of tape trading. You know, now I'm getting a little older, and it's sort of the the very first sort of generation of the internet. And I remember. Um, do you remember RSPW? Uh, what was it? Recreation Sports Pro Wrestling, which is sort of like yeah, uh, the the precursor to like the modern like internet wrestling community, um, yes. and it was just sort of just a text message board uh, where where you know smart and quote fans would would have these discussions, and then you get exposed to um, tape trading and things like that. And uh, I remember in, in college, you know, there was uh, like these computer banks in the library that were, again, they weren't even um, graphics. It was just sort of text, almost like a DOS prompt thing. But you could get into RSPW and uh, I'd spend hours. You just, yeah, you're just kind of wheeling and dealing uh, tape trading. And that's how you'd get exposed to, you know, there's a lot of like ECW house show stuff or, or Japanese yep. wrestling or, or, or kinds of, all kinds of international stuff. People would make their own compilations of certain wrestlers or certain types of matches. Um, and yeah, VHS. And then you get your little package in the mail. I remember, uh, gosh, when was this? This was probably late 90s to early 2000s, um, buying from somebody online the entire... Saturday Night's main event uh, collection on VHS, yeah, and I've got it somewhere, and it's complete with the the commercials, some of them, uh, the the original commercials that aired, and that's just fantastic. Great. Yeah, yeah. That I mean that that is gold. Like that is, I mean, I, you know, you said it. Like when you got into the tape trading part of it, and people are, and this is when I think you really saw people's love of this genre because now people are making their own compilation tapes and yeah. and it's and i mean you just think about the time that that takes and the care that 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 it requires to do that in a certain way at what it meant to share that with the other members of your community um even something like you know, the match listings being printed out on paper yeah. and like printed out by a printer. Like I remember getting that and be like, wow, that, that guy, that guy's really official. Like, like I have my match <laughs> listings here and it's like printed out on a, on computer paper. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's one of the frustrations. I mean, as great as the WWE network is and um, the, the wealth of stuff that's on there is how much isn't there. Right. So it, even having WWE network, I still find myself very often either going to my old my own VHS collection or YouTube a lot to find stuff, um, and and yeah, that's and I think the WWE Network is fantastic. But yeah, you wish you know there's not one episode of of Superstars or Challenge uh, on on the network, and I imagine they'll eventually get to them. But now we're whatever, almost four years into it, uh, and and yeah. yeah, there's sometimes there's no replacement for for your old old uh, tapes, even though. Um, I, I don't know about you, but but mine are starting to really show show their age, and you you heard that all along that eventually oh, yeah. these things are going to deteriorate. I mean, they're old like analog stuff on on that uh, ribbon, uh, and it, some of them are yeah. really showing their age. And actually, it's ones that aren't as old because those the the, the original VHSs that came out in the eighties and the VCRs as well were just a lot better made. I mean, you know that that tank of a VCR that I got that was my parents' first VCR. Um, works better and plays better than uh, certainly the the last generations of, of VCRs that came out in the late '90s and early 2000s. Uh, this thing probably weighs like 40 pounds. It's like steel, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, the, the first. I mean, the, the the VCRs in the '80s 
they really were. They, they must have been like 40 pounds. Yeah. And it's so funny that today, like you think of people taking HD video on their phones. And I remember we had a, um, we had an uncle who had, who was obsessed with video and, um, he would want to videotape like my baseball game, like all my sports games. One of those big over the shoulder uh, deals. Oh my God. This, <laughs> I mean, this guy had the, the camera looked like a, like he was in television production. I mean, <laughs> yeah, and he had like another, and then, he, but he also had like a separate smaller, almost like case that almost looked like a pocketbook, but it had like something else in it. I don't know if that's where the tape was or like it was a backup, but like you just think of, of how well these things were made, how heavy they were. Like as a kid, you weren't even allowed to touch it. <laughs> Do and, you remember uh, 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 Rewinders, which was like a, a big gift to get? I yes. felt like... Every time you'd go into like a Sears or something, they'd, they'd be hawking these rewinders. And it was sometimes they'd be like the shape of a sports car or something. And you open yeah. up, pop that. I don't even know what the purpose of them was. I mean, the VCR had a rewind function on it. But yeah, you had to have a Well, I, I, remember, I remember a kid who I grew up with had a, a video, a VHS tape rewinder. And he got it because someone told his dad that um, that minimizing the amount of times you rewind the tape, oh, that's right, yeah. Like, <clears throat> like would help like save the the heads on the VHS, yeah, extend the life of your and, VCR, yeah, uh, yeah, extend the life of the VCR. And you wanted you wanted your VCR to have four <laughs> heads. Yes, yeah. At, at least that's what the company. The, the so, uh, yeah. Yeah, the, the the ultimate thing that I I remember like like fantasizing about getting, and then when I was uh, a little older and working, maybe like twenty twenty one, and working like at, at a state park around here, I finally got was a double deck VCR. Do you remember these? As uh, Go Video, I think was the only company that that made them. Go Video might still be in business too, making like DVD players, um, and it was a gigantic VCR that had um, had two decks and. Basically, it was for copying tapes, which you could do before, but you needed two VCRs and you'd have to run wires from one to the other. Uh, but this was kind of built in and it had all kinds of editing features. And this thing was just fantastic. I mean, I was just, it was like a dream. I felt like a rich man owning my, my Go Video Double Deck VCR. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, know, I didn't own one, but, uh, but I remember seeing them. And it was, it was like, it was like a dream, you know, seeing <laughs> something like that. And then even like, um, when the VCRs became built into the TVs. Oh yeah, sure. Um, That's kind of a mixed blessing though, then, because one thing would go and then the other would be useless. And that was, that was the thing was, it was a little bit heartbreaking when you learn that when one goes, the others, yeah. like there's no point. Um, and then I, I do have still the, um, a Sony, it's a DVD VHS combo. Oh yeah, I've got one right next to me. <laughs> and um, in, yeah. and I, I like. There's no way I'm throwing that out. The quality of the VCR is excellent. Yeah, and uh, and it, it's from the late '90s, and it's actually from the previous owner of where I live. Oh really? Yeah, every once in a while, garage sale or something, um, you'll you'll find a, a gem. Yeah, I think I think yeah. uh, we're we're a couple years away from uh, a comeback. Not in you know a commercial sense that they're they're going to put these things back out uh but you know I've, I've got some friends who are like uh uh musicians and cassettes have made a big comeback like audio cassettes for uh, like independent yeah. musicians as a way to like distribute their music and there's a whole like audio cassette scene and uh there's already kind of a niche vcr scene i know like um horror movie junkies and like uh, kind of camp B movie junkies are are very big yeah. on on VHS, uh, but but uh, who knows? Maybe there might be a, a second chapter for for videotapes down the line. I I I really hope so because it, it it I feel like it's a great medium. It's a great combination of like technology from that era and and convenience and simplicity. 
and um, and they're they're great to have if you're a collector. And um, I mean, I love the the wrestling tape collection that that I've amassed over the years. And I can tell you also that it's been a huge asset to me in terms of research for for different projects. Oh sure, yeah. And um, you know, so there, there's no way that I'm parting with them anytime soon. <laughs> You know, and I know you've you've had access to WWE's archives uh, for the different projects you've yes. done over the years. Do they have a lot of video cassettes, is there, or is this stuff? Uh, has it all been transferred to digital? Does it exist on big reels? What is it? They, from what I've seen, they they've had they have a little bit of everything. I mean, you know, with the network, you know, you're talking about things obviously having to be digitized. Yeah. So, but in the archive, when you go through the archive, I mean, you'll see. Um, you know, you'll see everything from, you know, reels and, and VHS tapes to, you know, even first generation DVDs. I mean, they do have uh, different like product, almost like product samples of the commercial releases. And then um, from a TV standpoint, you know, I mean, everything um, has been digitized, but they also have um, many different uh, areas where these things are stored and on that and I don't even know about yeah. <clears throat> the places that I don't even know about, but, um, yeah, I mean, and that's another thing. I mean, you want to talk about the, um, the great, great work that's done by Ben Brown, the WWE archivist, um, during WrestleMania weekend, just go to the uh, fan access event and the, the, uh, the displays and the exhibits that, that he curates are are just unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. I'm going uh, to uh, New Orleans first time in a while with with the whole family uh, for WrestleMania. So uh, yeah, I think my kids are more excited about fan access than than anything else. So uh, yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, you got to keep uh, Seth Rollins out of that uh, warehouse or whatever it is because you know he's got that propensity to just burn down old uh, WWE historical relics. Yeah, he, uh, <laughs> he he really put his true colors in that one, man. They they got to keep him away from any any historical yes, stuff. Yes, keep him away from that that original Coliseum video collection there. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. All right, Brian, this was a lot of fun, man. As always, we got to do this again. Uh, I could talk to you all day on some of this stuff. Yeah, I, I was saying before, you know, you're, you're the one person <clears throat> I feel like I could uh, talk VHS with and gets it. I don't think anybody else, I, I tell my family, hey, I got a new VCR, and they just kind of look at me with, uh, you know, weird eyes. And you're the one person who's well, like, dude, wow. <laughs> that sounds great. You know what? You can, uh, you, you can always let me know, and I'll be, I'll be very happy for you. <laughs> before I go, I have to tell a very, very yes, quick please. PWI story. Um, so I grew up in Rockville Center, Pro Wrestling Illustrated's offices. Yeah, I think I've heard. I this believe before. until yeah. the, uh, until until the early '90s were in Rockville Center. So um, I would see Bill After on the streets in our quote-unquote town, like where all the mom and pop shops were in the movie theater, and and I would run up to Bill on the street as like a ten-year-old kid when I would see him, even like, <laughs> like crossing traffics, like Sunrise Highway, um, and I would just pepper him with like the latest questions that I saw from like WWE TV or NWA or Pro Wrestling This Week, which, you know, the NWA right, yeah. programs he was on and Pro Wrestling This Week he was on too. And um, he could not have been nicer to me Every like, I mean, I felt bad now looking back on it. Like <laughs> I harassed this this man, but um, he could not have been nicer, and always answering my questions. And years later, I met Bill about ten years later when I worked in the video game business at Acclaim Entertainment on Long Island, and um, he remembered those those instances. And uh, we had a great laugh about it, and we've been good friends ever since, which is now almost 20 years. That's great, yeah. And we still uh, like I, that. Just super I, accessible, yeah. Yeah, and I just have so many great memories of that, and I still have all my Pro Wrestling Illustrated magazines. It is uh, something that's very special to me, and uh, and it's just been a, a phenomenal magazine for now decades, so... Thank you. Uh, a huge thank you to uh, to Pro Wrestling Illustrated for 
for all their work over the years. You're very welcome, and, and thanks for, for the support. Let, let me ask you, what is, and this is lost on most listeners, but I'm in Rockville Center uh, a lot. I just watched Star Wars there over the weekend. Um, what What oh, is cool. where, as kind of a reference point, what is there now or near there now where the PWI offices were? You know, I, I don't know. Was it like, um, on, I don't on like know. that main strip, or was it tucked away somewhere? In, I, I, you know what? All these years, I still have no idea because <laughs> in the back, here's why. In the back of the magazine, there was only a P.O. box right. address. And, uh, and this, this is my level of fandom as a child. Um, when I saw that and I asked my mom, I, mean, I, I was 10, I didn't know what a P.O. box was. She said, oh, she said, well, that's something at the post office. I rode my bike. This was because I was not allowed to ride my bike across Sunrise Highway as a 10-year-old or across town. I, I launched a covert operation um, to ride, ride my bike across town, across the busy thoroughfare that Sunrise Highway. And I went to the Rockville Center Post Office on Merrick Road, and I waited online, and I brought the magazine with me in my book bag. And I said, uh, can you tell me where this is? And I, when, I, when it was my turn um, to be helped by the teller, and uh, they would not tell me where the yeah, office so. was. Um, people probably thought I was nuts. Again, <laughs> I was about 10, so I barely even made it, or barely made it to the counter. Um, but yeah, I don't, you know what? And I, I talk to Bill fairly often. So after this interview, I'm going to send them a, a direct message on Facebook because I need to know where that office was. <laughs> I think I, I've asked, way. yeah, I think I've asked Stu about it, and, and maybe it was just like, uh, was it was it Stan Weston's house, maybe or something? It might have been like a, a floor of his house or something. Yeah, I gotta, I'll check in with Stu about that because I, I I need now I need to know and <laughs> yeah. all the questions that I asked Bill over the years and Stu. Uh, you know, the great Stu Sachs, I mean, uh, you talk about incredible work. Um, you know, the times I've spoken to him and asked him different questions, that's the one question that I never asked him. Yeah, I'm sure he'll, he'll after he hears this, uh, he'll get, get back to me with the answer, and I'll pass it along. <laughs> yeah. Please do. Yeah. All right, Brian, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Best to you, the family. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas, all that stuff. And, and uh, hopefully we talk again in the new year. Thank you, my friend, and, and I can't thank you enough again for just your support over the years and friendship really, really means a great deal to me. Thank you very much. Same here. My pleasure, man. Take it easy. All right, you too.